Hello, and welcome to this episode of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Will Duffin. In this episode, I'm joined by emergency medicine physician's assistant, Sarah Spellsberg. Now, Sarah is uh, at a unique position. She's based out in the Aleutian Islands, which is this chain of islands uh, just coming off uh, Alaska, sticking out into the Bering Sea, really remote and rugged place. She's in a place called Dutch Harbour. And we first uh, learned about Sarah's work when she applied for the fellowship in extreme and wilderness medicine. And we read through her application and just thought, um, she's doing the most unbelievable things. Uh, and Sarah's stories just really captured our imagination. She's been uh, doing things like uh, thoracocentesis in the middle of cyclones. She's been delivering babies in her pajamas. She's transported patients uh, in helicopters over erupting volcanoes and uh, transported stroke patients in the back of cargo planes. She's done had incredible experience uh, in this remote wilderness, in transporting critically ill patients under the most uh, challenging circumstances. So we were really, really excited to invite Sarah onto the podcast to regale us with some of her escapades. So Sarah, it's it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's truly an honor to be here. This is the podcast that I listen to regularly. Well, and now you're on it. How does that feel? <laughs> I, it feels like a dream come true, to be honest. Oh, it's, cool. I'm just so honored. Great, great. Well, we you know we we just really like it. when people reach out to us and they've got an interesting story to tell. You know, we mm-hmm. um, uh, and we want to share that with the world. And your so Sarah is um, she's a currently a physician's assistant, but she's actually yeah. still completing her uh, MD she'll, if, with St James's University in the Caribbean. So you'll be uh, a doctor in the next year and a half. Is that right, Sarah? Yes, yes. I I always wanted to be a doctor, and I I went to PA school, and then. 10 years into that, I thought, you know, I'm, if I'm on my deathbed, the only regret I'm going to have is not knowing as much as I can know and being able to do as much as I can do. And so I went, I went back. It's been hard, but I'm glad I did it. So working and studying at the same time, but kind of juggling yes. those two things. Yes. And, and before we go into some of the uh, stuff that you've done, Sarah, it's great for people to just get a sense of, of, of your kind of work at the moment. Now, I understand you divide your time when you're not out in the Aleutians, you're uh, back in, in Florida, which is where your, your main home is, and, and you've got quite a portfolio career. Tell us a little bit about the range of different things that you've, you're doing at the moment. And and I feel very fortunate for this because work seems to find me. I I always think I'm going to take four weeks off and then I I end up with a cool assignment. But I I travel around Florida and fill in holes in emergency rooms and urgent cares. I still fill in where I worked for 10 years at Mayo Clinic in Florida in the orthopedic surgery department. And I'm on call to assist in the ICU. And I spent um, several weeks out in California staffing COVID field hospitals when uh, the overflow out there got to be too much. And I also staff emergency rooms in central California. And so I've just, I've, I feel very fortunate. I get to travel to all these amazing places and work with incredible people and take care of very interesting patients. And with that, you have to be incredibly versatile, I presume. You, yes, you have to, it, you, maybe you're working on paper that day. Maybe you're working on one EMR or another and you just have to roll in and just figure out how yeah. it works and do it. <laughs> it's so challenging, isn't it? Switching between different clinical systems, different teams, different 
locations, different pathways. It must be, yeah, we're a huge challenge. It, it can be. Every day is different. Every day is different. But that's also the appeal, isn't it? That variety. You're certainly not not stuck in the nine to five, Sarah, by the sounds of it. No, no, it's it's there's a lot of variety, and I and I think I I thrive off that trying to trying to make things work when it when it's a little bit stressful like that. Okay, so Sarah, what we're going to do is I'm going to basically say, tell me about the time when you did insert insane thing here. Does that sound okay? <laughs> that sounds fine. <laughs> so, uh, as a physician assistant, I presume you don't. That, does that include any obstetric training? It you have you have. Uh, four weeks of an OB gyne rotation, and depending on your attending during your rotation, will be the extent of, of what your experience is. And I was fortunate yeah. to have a very good attending for my OB gyne. Um, but okay. so yeah, you have but, some grounding in it, but you know, not a full. So, what, what tell me, Sarah, what was it like when you had to deliver a baby in the pajama in your pajamas in the rain? <laughs> with flip-flops on and no gloves. Talk, talk me through it. So I'm sound asleep and dispatch calls and says, there's a woman on her way to the clinic in labor. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, what? And he said, do you want me to call anybody? And I just said, I want you to call everybody. I haven't delivered a baby in 10 or 12 years. And, um, and then I, I, I'm in my pajamas, you know, which is a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. And I looked out the window because I live, when I'm in Dutch Harbor, I live in this little apartment above the ER area, the after hours emergency area. And I see this truck just skidding into the parking lot. And so I, I ran down the stairs and I ran up to the door and I said, hang on, I'll go get a wheelchair and we'll get you inside. And mom said, I don't know if there's enough time. And I took a look. And there was not enough time. And this baby came shooting out into my hands and her dad ha dad's hands. We caught him together. And then, you know, then, and the cords wrapped around his neck. He's blue. I didn't even know that people could be that shade of blue. And I'm holding him up in, in one hand by his little ankles upside down and, and unwrapping the cord from his neck with my other hand. And I, the last thing i heard was you're supposed to smack him on the behind to make him cry. So that's what I did. And, uh, and he cried and he pinked up and, and then we were able to, then fortunately some of the local paramedics showed up and said, one of them ran up to me and said, orders, please. <laughs> and so I rattled off you know, the list of the things that I wanted and, and we cut the cord and got them both inside and, and they, and they ended up doing great, but it was after hours and it's raining and everybody has to get warm inside and, we don't have a medevac plane on the island at the time. And so, you know, we have to wait for, cause, cause I don't know what's, what's going to happen and how much prenatal care someone's had and how compliant they've been with everything. And so, so I, I wanted the baby to go, I don't even have a birth certificate. I can't like fill out. A, I can't fill out. Yes, you were born. Like I, I don't have those things. And so maybe I do, and I just don't know where they are, but, but it's not something that happens very often out there was going through your mind when you you were suddenly faced with that situation and you have absolutely nothing nothing in your training has prepared you for uh, that moment what was your first thought can you remember my first thought was if you hold it together now you can cry later okay. and, and so and just and then I was just to whatever entity was listening I was like please please don't let this baby please don't let anything bad happen to this baby or this mom on my watch. Like, please, please, please protect these people. And, uh, and then you just start doing the things you, you do what you know how to do in, in the absence of anything else. 
And and later, one of the paramedics said, I want to congratulate you on how calm you were. And I was like, well, you know, don't confuse stoic with calm. Because <laughs> I was not, I was terrified inside. I mean, yeah. I just was so afraid that something bad was going to happen to one or the other of them. And I, and I wouldn't know what, what to do and, and how to fix it. I like that, Sarah. Hold it together now. Cry later. I, um, I think it's a real skill, isn't it? To be able to project calm to the rest of the team when you're, yeah. you know, there's internal panic because yes. your, your calmness, your sense of control of that situation is so instrumental to everyone else, hopefully remaining calm and yes. being able to follow instructions and contribute to the workings of that team. Uh, so that's yes. an amazing skill that you have there to, to do that. Thank you. Yeah. When you're, when you're in charge, you have to set that tone and just, and morale is such a, I want everybody to feel like they have meaningful work and they're making a difference and I want them to feel, to feel happy. And so, yes. Okay. So that's that. So you've, you've dabbled in some obstetrics. Well done. (laughs) Uh, Obviously uh, all worked out the, the healthy newborn, um, tell me then uh, you, you, about your MacGyver thoracocentesis in the middle of an Arctic hurricane. Uh, so this this poor patient came in, and it was it was right when medevac left because the winds were about to be so bad it just would have shredded their plane. So they flew to Anchorage, and an hour later, this person, as we're as this what we call a cyclone bomb, or I also call it an Arctic hurricane is just descending on the Island. And she comes in and she thinks she has COVID because she can't breathe. And so we do, you know, we do all the tests. I was actually on all nights at that time for a while, for months, actually, I did emergency call every single night. And then my colleagues would cover during the day because we were trying to have everybody where they were best suited, um, to make a difference and try to give, uh, you know, some of the day staff a, a break from taking night call. Cause that's when all the crazy stuff happens. But so she came in and this poor thing, she can't breathe and her, her lungs are full of fluid and it's not her COVID test is negative and her influenza test is negative. And, and she's got this, and there's this mass in the abdomen. And so then it starts to be like, I mean, is this a lymphoma? Is this something else? And, but of course, we're looking at the weather and, and I'm very close with some of the Coast Guard uh, medevac pilots as well as the commercial medevac teams. And so the commercial medevac wasn't an option because they just left because their little plane would have been shredded in the wind. And so I'm talking to the Coast Guard about whether or not they think the C-130 can handle the wind and, and, and they don't. And when they say that, like, I believe them because these guys fly in some crazy weather. So for them to say, we don't think it's safe for us to bring the helicopter or the C-130 out there in this weather, you know, and, and it's like, and, and he's actually said to me, if you tell me that she's definitely going to die today, if we don't, you know, maybe, maybe we'll try. And I'm like, no, I think we can do this. I think we can keep, keep her going. And at the time the fluid wasn't that bad, but over the next few days, as the weather just camped on us, where it just sounded like a freight train was going past the clinic constantly uh it, it the fluid got more and more and her breathing became more labored and so then it becomes well we need to pull some of this fluid off but we don't have a pigtail or we don't have a kit for that and it's like well all we really need is to get in and and so i took we took lidocaine and we went into the, i went into the rib where i wanted to go i actually have a handheld ultrasound device and we, we looked and confirmed that there was fluid there went into the rib went just over the rib and, and injected all my numbing medicine. And then I started pulling back 
And the minute I got fluid, I had the paramedic clamp that part of the needle and we came out. And so then I know that's how far I have to go in to get fluid. And I don't want to go further than that because there's bad things deeper than that that I don't, I don't want to touch. And, um, and so then it's like, well, what do we have? Well, we have a spinal needle. Okay. So we go in through the same hole with a spinal needle and a three-way stopcock. And we hooked this to an, which was the paramedics idea. I can't take credit for that. That she's, she's brilliant. Uh, we hooked it to an empty IV bag because that will be how we'll measure how much we're taking off. And so then I, I, I went in with a little bit of back pressure on and then suddenly right where my clamp was, I got fluid back. And so we pulled off 60 cc's, switched the three-way stopcock, put it in the, put it in the bag. And it's like, okay, everybody, everybody's doing okay. 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 We'll take off a little bit more. And we ended up taking off about a, a liter and a half of fluid and, and, and they could breathe then. And, and then that temporized them until finally the storm left us, but that storm camped on us for four and a half days. I think so I mean that's a really great example of some prolonged field care uh where you've got a patient with massive pleural effusion who's their physiology was quite compromised who normally would have made a vac out wasn't an option can't do that yep so you just had to so do, now what? Do, what, do what you could with a spinal needle and get that in the chest and get get some of that fluid off and it's interesting your mm-hmm. approach how you you kind of just went in very tentatively you just did one step reassessed and then a little bit more you weren't you weren't kind of going in too gung-ho you sound mm-hmm. very cautious actually in, in in how you did that yes thank you yeah I, I try not to do I don't take your airway unless I have to I don't yeah. I don't I try to be minimalist when it comes to interventions if you need it we do it but if you don't need it then I, I try not to and did you um I mean did you feel you had the level of competency that you needed to do that p- procedure in that setting, mm-hmm. or did you um, call back to um, the base hospital or anything for any support or, or advice on, on in that case? I think like, so I've done chest tubes, quite a few chest tubes. Cause I've worked yeah. in a lot of places where, where, as we talked before, where people like to stab each other. Yes. So, so I've done yeah, a California. Apparently everyone's quite stabby in California. So that's right. <laughs> they can be a little stabby out there. So, <laughs> so I, I have, I have worked in places where I had to do yeah. chest tubes. And so, and we've had to do them up in Alaska too, of course. And, um, and so it's, it's not that different, you know, it's, it's the approach was a little bit different. And I just, I just kind of, I know the anatomy, fortunately, because I've, I've studied a lot and, and I, I hate to say it. I watched a YouTube video that a doctor made that who, who makes a lot of procedural videos who I watch and I trust. And I was like, let me just look at this real quick, just so I can make sure that what I have in my head is, is what it looks like they did. And, and they had different equipment, of course, you know, they've got their pigtail and stuff, but, but, uh, you know, the approximate location that they went, it's like, oh, I think we can do that. I think we can MacGyver this out of what we have. Yeah. You know, I mean, YouTube videos are a great resource. You know, as a family physician, I do joint injections. And every time I've done a joint injection that I haven't done for a while, I, I've got a little library of YouTube videos that I watch just to remind myself of the correct approach, landmarks and, and stuff. Yes. And a, so the patient came in early and saw you just brushing up on YouTube. They would think, oh, no, who is this guy? Who's this cowboy? <laughs> Doesn't look good, but great resource. But it's when, yeah, it is a career resource. And when you find someone you trust, and you watch their procedures and they, they haven't led you astray yet. It's, it's, it's just another way to learn in an austere environment. You know, it's not the time of day was not appropriate for, I do call like some of the critical care people at Mayo clinic 
an anesthesiologist and specialist there, I have their cell phones and they'll look at an x-ray for me and they'll, they'll, they'll talk me through things, which is, which is just, I'm so grateful for just as friends, they'll do this. And, and Providence in Anchorage, the Providence hospital, and particularly their ER, those physicians are an incredible resource to us. They, they, They always take your call. I mean, they've never said no to me. I mean, they are just, they're incredible. They're so helpful. And so we yeah. have good backup when we need it. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I watched a YouTube video. I... <laughs> <laughs> you can never have all the expertise in house, no matter mm-hmm. you know, who you are. Uh, I think um, it sounds as though that's happening mostly informally. Is there any more a formal telemed type system for, for where you're working? There, uh, there is, we have like a EICU, but that's more of a nurse that'll sort of help you look at the patient. It, it's more like we get the ICU docs or the ER docs on the phone. And talk to them about what we're seeing and ask if they have any other ideas. Yeah. Okay. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Sarah. So tell me about, okay, this ne- next um, <laughs> next scenario now. Tell me about the time when you transported a critical patient in a Coast Guard helicopter past an actively erupting volcano. Oh, yes. So we, we had this extremely critical guy who we knew we had to medevac. Medevac wasn't on island and they can't land there after twilight. Only the military can. So the Coast Guard agreed to help us. So they were going to fly me and the patient from Dutch Harbor over to another island called Cold Bay, which is an alternate space shuttle landing site, bigger runway. Medevac was going to meet me there. We were going to rendezvous on our way to Anchorage. And as, as we're flying, I see this kind of orange light you know, in my peripheral vision. And I said, you know, what is, what, what's that light? And one of the, one of the pilots, you know, they're busy flying the plane. They don't have time for my, you know, questions about the light. And, and they just said, oh, maybe it's the moon. And, and I said, oh, it's pretty orange for the moon. Like it is orange, like lava. And the, uh, one of the flight engineers poked me and he had pulled up on a night vision camera the a night vision view of this volcano erupting and and i i got a great picture of that you know the green volcano with the gray smoke and uh, and and sure enough it was a volcano with lava running down the side and spewing into the sky and we were flying right past it at night and then the next day we couldn't fly back uh, the medevac couldn't fly back because of the ash cloud so we ended up waiting a day or two for the ash cloud to dissipate. And then we, as we flew back, one of the medevac pilots, Daniel Husterlid, took that other picture I sent you of, of the volcano just just going off uh, during the day. And it, and it just it's just so spooky. And the world is just such a violent, crazy place sometimes. And just I just I, I'm like, I can't believe my life. I am in I'm a civilian. I'm no, you know, nobody really. And, and I'm in a Coast Guard helicopter part of the team that's trying to save this man's life and we did and and we're flying past an, an erupting volcano like i love my life like <laughs> when i'm an old lady like this is going to give me a lot of pleasure remembering this moment oh it's just totally mad i mean I, there'll be lots of medics listening to this that do transport work i i used to uh, doing repatriation and all kinds of different things. But I, I, I do think many people can say that they've uh, had, you're dealing with patient's physiology and lots of other other things, but to, to deal with a, an actively erupting volcano, that's something else. Yeah, I over mean, the Bering Sea. <laughs> yeah, over the and, and it was obviously quite beautiful to watch, but I mean, was there a risk to that, to, the, to your flight that, that you could be hit by debris or was, was it also a bit, 
a bit terrifying at the same time I, or are you far enough away from it? I feel, I, I gosh, I, these pilots have flown me so many times, both the commercial medevac and the Coast Guard, that I, I trust them with my life. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about, I, I would assume if there was acute danger that they would be actively trying to fly around it. So, so never once did I think, oh, this could take down the helicopter. Um, there are times when I think this is a really old helicopter <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And, and I know that it needs more maintenance, but it, uh, it, it yeah, never once do I think about like the pilots. I, I trust their weather decisions and I trust their terrain decisions. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can sense you've got a really strong working relationship with the other, the other crew mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. on the base there at Dutch Harbor um it was with the with the, with the pilots and who who are the who are the other non-clinical crew that really make that that operation happen that you, you have to be kind of working closely with the i mean it, it can be everybody i mean when we had we had a commercial plane crash off the runway and i mean it was the harbor master uh and when one of the medevac planes went into the water it was the harbor master who got into their boat the fastest and got over there and got them out of their lifeboat um, and so, so it, it can be everybody from the harbor master, um, the Coast Guard flight and ground crew, uh, the Onalaska Fire Department, the police. Um, and we even have, we've actually, we're working on a group of civilians now who have some special skills, be it drone work or, or a lot of mountaineering and snowmobile work. And we've put together um, a group that will assist with rescues they can and they can be called in for searches and other things which which we didn't have before which has been great um and and then the unalaska fire department they won they actually won fire department of the year for the state of alaska and one of their paramedics won firefighter of the year for the state of alaska for all of the incredible and heroic things that they have done and so it really is an island-wide thing and even one of the city employees when i didn't have the right adapters we, well, we're going to talk about vent splitters, but when I didn't have the right adapters, one of the city employees handmade them on a lathe. Yeah. That's and so, pretty, yeah. so it, it's, it, yeah. we, we don't fail because we can't fail and, and everybody just works together and brings whatever skills they have to the table. Yeah. And, and that's a, another a really strong theme for the way you practice Sarah is this, this idea of the, you know, how you're, you're constantly working on your, your capacity to create solutions out of random pieces of, of gear, you know, repurposing and, and tweaking and modifying things um, to make it happen. You, you mentioned the vent splitters there. Let, let's talk about that for a moment. Tell us about how you've been able to increase your ventilator capacity um, through that whole approach through creating novel solutions. Tell us more about that so when when covid hit i i was devastated and terrified and and i've always known we were 48 hours away from a global pandemic but this one was was a big deal because we're on an island in the middle of the bering sea and there's anywhere from 5000 to 12000 people and several commercial fisheries, 65% of the seafood consumed in the U.S. comes from these fisheries, as well as countless protein points to developing nations. So if this comes here, like we have, you know, three actual ventilators, um, the genius paramedic Jody Gross at the clinic saved a bunch of gas powered paramedic or uh, gas powered ventilators, you know, but then we have to use oxygen to power those. Um, but but they remained uh, an option at least. Like thank God she saved all of those. Um, but and then and then if the Madivac is on island, we might have a fourth ventilator. 
so if I get more than four patients, how, do, how am I going to decide who gets the vent and who doesn't? And so then I st started reading everything I could, like all of us. And um, a friend of mine sent me the article from 2008 by Lorenzo Palladino, where he had kept four sheep alive for, I forget how long, on one vent. And, and he had built these vent splitters. And so I actually reached out to him. And from the middle of the pandemic, he answered in four hours. And he said, and I, and I think he was in New York at the time when, when it was really bad in New York. And, um, and, he, and he just said, wow, if anyone's going to have to do this, it's you. And I've never seen it done in the field. You know, so I, I will help you. And if you have, if you have to um, do it, just please tell me like, what you did, how you did, and how it worked. And, um, and so we talked about it because I was concerned because in the study, they did it on volume. But if you get a kinked line, you're going to barrel trauma the other person in the line. And so I was just, I, I, I just wanted some guidance on that. And so we talked about it and decided that it was better to do it on pressure because then everybody's getting a set amount of pressure. And if someone's line kinks, nobody gets more pressure. And so then, okay, I, I know how to, you know, I know how in theory it works, but now how am I going to make it work? And so I'm in the hardware store looking for the right, like with my little pieces of the vent, like looking for the right size PVC. And, and that's another thing about the teamwork, the hardware store employee, like I don't have a saw and, and he helped me cut the, the pieces of PVC pipe to, to help at least build my prototype. And, um, and then I hooked it up and I hooked it up to practice lungs and it worked. And so then I was like, really, I'm it works. We can do this. Like, so this, this little so, bit of PVC pipe, you managed to double the ventilator, ventilator capacity. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Yes. With, with little people, with like a, a T with, with a, like, like what you would do your plumbing in your house on yeah. a little T connector and then like two smaller pieces of PVC to fit in that. And then the ventilator tubing was able to go on that. And so I had one and, and the yeah, one to one to two and we divided all the, all the vents and then, and I was able to show everybody that it worked. And so, cause I think at first, like sometimes people think that I just don't rest and I don't sleep and like, what, you know, what are you, what are you, no, you they're naturally skeptical. I can understand that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Oh, I've got an invention. Like, nah, not really, but you know, I'm just, I just kind of figured out how to do it out of pieces of plastic at the hardware yeah. store. And then it, and it was a little leaky. It worked but I, I wasn't super happy with the seal and, and I tried to order the actual adapters that would, that would make it a really nice solid seal. And I, and these companies would let me place my order. And then three days later they would say we're out of stock and they would cancel. And then I'd order again and then they'd be out of stock and they'd cancel. And so then I started asking everybody on the Island, does anybody, you know, do, you guys have a 3d printer. Do you think you can make me these? And then the 3d printer was like a little off. So they didn't quite fit. And so, um, uh, band eventer at, at the city, he hand made me nine, nine of these adapters on his lathe so that, that it, we had really good seals and, and it would be a solid solution if we had to use it. Fortunately, we did not, I, I haven't had to deploy that solution yet. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, do you know what, there's been more, more examples of like this, Sarah, where the, the, the pandemic has caused people to innovate in ways they haven't before. It's forced, um, it's forced that, that kind of inventiveness that you've, you've mm -hmm. just d d demonstrated there. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, you you going to try and put this in production? You going to patent it? <laughs> no. If anyone can patent it, it's it's Dr. Palladino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's the godfather of that. Yeah, but it yeah. it just yeah it just it I feel like modern medicine could learn a lot from austere medicine. You don't have to buy a two hundred dollar piece of equipment to to build this. Like you can you can repurpose other things and upcycle other things and build it. Like for example, the high flow oxygen. Of course, we don't have high flow oxygen. We can't afford those fancy yeah. things. And and but it, it the point of it is to block the oxygen from escaping and bathe bathe the nasopharynx. So I took um, earplugs and I, I cut the tip off and I bored a hole in the center and I put those over the nasal cannula. And if you put that in their nose and then put a mask over them, you, you can simulate high flow oxygen. Ah, crafty. With like, yeah. with like 20 cent earplugs. Like you don't, you know, you don't yeah. have to buy, buy the expensive stuff. Yeah, yeah, I I love the imagination and the inventiveness there. That that's brilliant. So you've you've been in pretty much the back of any aircraft. You've been in helicopters. You've been in various types of fixed wing. Uh, but there was a time where you had to transport a stroke patient in the back of a cargo plane, yes. and then a taxi. And it was all a bit <laughs> uh, a bit challenging. T- tell me about that. So so this poor guy. So he came to us from another island, and 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 they'd kind of been sitting, you know, they'd, they'd been trying to figure it out for him and they sent him to us on a boat. And then by the time he got to me, my daylight had timed out and I wasn't going to be able to medevac him. And however he was over with them, the report I got was very different from the patient I got. And he, he was, he, he was very obviously having a stroke, like complete hemiparesis. Like he, he was very obviously stroking out. And I it, it was one of the first times, like one of the only times my nurse has ever heard me raise my voice is, is I was just like, you just shot me in the foot. Like you sent me this guy and I can't help him now. Like, this is not cool. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I threw a little bit of a, of a, of a tantrum, like, just like you shot me in the foot. And I, I want, all I care about is what's doing what's best for the patient. And the only time you'll hear me raise my voice is if something you did interfered with that like a a decision. And so, so I threw a little bit of a fit and then um, their sort of porter concierge on the Island for that fishery said, if I can get you like the cargo planes going back to Anchorage, if I can get them to agree to take you guys, like this is not something we can do routinely or we should do routinely. It was sort of like, this guy needs help immediately. The faster, the better time is brain. And, um, and so, but they said somebody has to go with them. And so it's, and, and, and it, it, at the time it, it should have been me because we were short nurses and paramedics. We, we actually had a few family practice, people who could cover, covered the call. And so I, I said, absolutely. If you, if you can get me in the back of that cargo plane and I can get this guy to the hospital, I, I, yes, that's the plan. And then um, I, and, and I thought we'd communicated that we wanted an ambulance to meet the plane, but when we got to, when we got to the cargo planes runway, there was a taxi cab there. And I was like, it's, it's, it's fine. Like if you guys will help me help him out of the plane, cause this poor guy can't really walk and help me get him into the cab. Like I'm going. And so then I'm calling report to this ER that's expecting us. And they said, Oh, you know, come to ambulance bay too. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you're in a black cab. We're going to be yeah. pulling into the front. And, and God bless the, the charge nurse there. Like 
they, you know, I told them my ETA, they met me at the door with, with a stretcher. And we, when we got him like out of the cab into the stretcher and he went straight to CT, like they, they were everybody that the thing about Alaska is I feel like, you know, sometimes like we, sometimes you get pushback at like specialty hospitals, people feel overworked, they're tired. They don't want the consult in Alaska. People are like, they get it. They understand what you're up against. And the answer is always yes. And the answer is always, what do you have? Send it. And uh, what can we do to help? I mean, so it's, it's a really fun and inspiring place to work. And so I, I get there, but their EMR is down and their translation system is down and no one there speaks any Spanish and I speak Spanish. So now it's like three in the morning and I, I really, really, really want to go to bed, but this poor guy is not going to be able to communicate with anybody because their whole EMR internet, Wi-Fi translator service on the iPad is down. And so, so I stayed with him and translated for him until until uh, they got their system back up. And so it was kind of interesting to see the CT and see the evolution of it and the neurologists. And, and, and when they had questions about his care and what had happened before, I was sitting right there. So it was kind of, it was, oh, I was great. able to give a really yeah. good report. That's great. You stayed with him. It, it would have been very easy for you to try and rush back. No way. Yeah, um, no, I can't do you that. There. I just have this amazing image of you just yeah, getting out of this taxi cab with this guy with this dense hemiparesis just kind of hanging off your arm and dragging him across was, the car park into the ED. That, that was about it. That was, that was, and I've got it, you know, I've, I've got his backpack on my back and my backpack on my back and I'm just yeah. sharpening this poor guy into the ER. Yeah. Um, I, ho I hope he's doing okay. Yeah, presumably. I mean, what was the time from onset of his symptoms to actually get into the ED? Did he make the thrombolysis window or was it? Um, no, way, we're, way we're, it was out of that. Cause way he was, out, yeah, he was, yeah. he was four hours on a boat and then yeah, three hours, you know, then, then an hour in the clinic, three hours in a plane with me, 30 sure. minute cab ride, you know, like what, yeah. it, it was a risk taking the, the cab. Cause like, I, what if he decompensates and I'm in the back of the cab? Like it definitely was. Yes. It, yeah. it, but other or or we're sitting on the runway waiting, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes for an ambulance. So it, and I can have him at the ER in 20 minutes if I throw him in the cab. So there you go. Folks. Moral of the stories: don't have a, a a serious stroke out in the Aleutian Islands if you can avoid it. Yeah. Uh, not the best place. <laughs> Try and find a nice it. urban area with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but so you're not only a medic out in the Aleutians, though, Sarah. You're also a vet. Is that right? You're not veterinary trained, but no, people yeah. still approach you with their uh, cats and dogs. T tell us about some of the the animals that you've oh, looked after. Yes, so we do have we have vets that will come visit for a week here or there, but it seems like all the emergencies happen when there's no vet on the island and and. And it, and it is an emergency thing. Like I, we, I have no veterinary training. I don't charge for it. The, the conversation starts with, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not a vet. You know, I'll, I'll try my best. I have friends who are vets who I can call or I can call your vet. Uh, and, and so unfortunately, some of the, the vets in Alaska are as, are as good as the uh, ER docs at, at uh, Providence of Anchorage. They will take your call and they will, they will help you. Um, but gosh, you know, we have, we've had dogs, you know, with open fractures with their leg and, and it's, it's different. You know, the vet's telling me I need to give him 20 milligrams of morphine. Like, are you sure this little dog, I need to give him 20 milligrams of morphine. Are you sure? And, and I guess their metabolism and their opioid receptors are different and they need more pain medicine. And so thank God that, you know, for the people that will take, take our calls and talk us through it. 
Um, but so yeah, just, I've had just, to put sutures in One moment, dogs. Sarah, how do you give morphine to a dog? I'm, I'm a bit baffled. Uh, you could you could start an IV. I have started I, I started an IV on a seizing dog. Yeah. Um, in their but where paw. do you where do you even find the vein on a dog? Um, on the front of their paw, there's a vein oh. that goes right down there. That's a, that's a, a good spot. On on okay. the bigger dogs, on the yeah. smaller dogs, it's really tough. You have to shave um, their paw. Sh- it helps if you shave them. Mm. It helps if you shave them. And and then sometimes I just give the medicine I am. So you grab the scruff of your ne- of their neck and you just go yeah. in right there. Or I'll I'll do it in their little buttock uh, muscle, and it, we've had I've had to suture their one of them fell and their teeth went through their face and they had this big hole in their cheek and so we've had to suture suture up the cheek. I have to sedate them. Uh, we'll we'll have to sedate them and do that. And it's it's kind of scary if they're mad, you know. Mm. If if it if it's like a giant dog who's in pain and furious about it, it's yeah. it's a little scary and you have to kind of sneak attack them with the ketamine. So uh, you've to had to it. use ketamine sedate. Uh, animals yes yeah that must be quite yes. challenging to um to actually get the mask on get get them safe where they're not gonna uh, injure you with their with their teeth it's yes yeah it's it's tough and it and then thank god for the again the Alaska fire department their their paramedics will will come and, and the firefighters will come and help you kind of wrangle the dog and and you can only do that if you if if you don't have any pressing human emergencies but it's like I have dogs, you know. I've always had pets, and so to when someone's dog's in trouble or their cat's in trouble, yeah, of course I want to try to help if if I can. But yeah, we can't charge for it. We can't, you know, we don't advertise for it. It's it's completely just an emergency situation. You're asking me for help, and I will I will try to help. Um, yeah. And we've we've made arrangements to medevac dogs. Yeah, that the cargo plane does do. Wow. <laughs> the cargo plane will medevac a dog for you. <laughs> Dogavac. Yes, Dogavac. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just it's remarkable how versatile uh, you've had to be out there. Are there any things that you've had to say no to? Is there any situations where you said, "Look, I'm, I, know, I want to do everything. I want, I want to contribute as much as I can, but I, I, I don't think there's anything I can do here. But I, you know, I, I can't, I can't add value. Have you ever had that? I've never had to say no to trying, but I, I've had to call codes when people have been down too long. Yeah, yeah. And that's always tough. That's always tough to walk up. But you'd have to do that at any, you know, that, that you, that's not just the austere remote thing. That's, that's anywhere. And, and these people, they wouldn't have been saved even if they were at a larger academic institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had to call codes and, and, I, and I've had, um, I've had some dogs, you know, dogs or cats that we just make comfortable because there's really nothing we can do. Yeah. Uh, and, and the people, you know, we've had some people where it's just, we can't fix this here. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to, you have to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for all your anecdotes. It's just in- incredible to see how you've managed to combine what you love doing, being traveling, being off grid into a career of remote and, and austere healthcare. I think that's been really inspiring for all of us listening to you today. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to be on here and to talk to you. It's, I'm, I'm just thrilled. It's truly an honor. Oh, it's 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 uh, it's an honor for us too. And if you want to hear more about Sarah's exploits, then she's presenting at this year's World Extreme Medicine Conference, 
which is taking place in Edinburgh on the 13th to the 15th of November. Tickets are on sale now. We're having a hybrid approach to the conference this year, so there'll also be a digital conference running alongside mm -hmm. of, of this. And uh, give us a little sneak peek. What's your session going to be about, Sarah? Just give people a, 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 a teaser. Well, I am planning on being there in person. I've already booked the tickets and I've already booked the hotel. And I, my, I'm giving two talks. One is on um, wilderness sports injuries and their radiographic findings. So in that talk, we look at an x-ray and we talk about what the injury is, what the mechanism was, and we guess which sport the person was doing. And so it's, it's that, that talk is more of a game. And then my second talk will be kind of like what we talked about today, an overview of, of how to coordinate medevacs, uh, multidisciplinary medevacs uh, from out in the Aleutian Islands in the Bering Sea. And then I'm also presenting, uh, we've done some research on um, wound care additives. So we're going to present the first stage of that research in poster form. Yeah, looking forward to all of that, Sarah. That's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, if people wanted to reach out to you, Sarah, the, to, to connect with you and learn more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. Um, on on uh, Instagram, I'm at Spelzy. That's S-P-E-L-S-I-E. -S -S -E, that's my nickname. And then um, on Facebook, I'm Sarah Catherine. And there's a picture of a girl, me climbing. And then um, on, on Twitter, it's also Spelzy. Uh, and I'd be happy to connect via social media. If any, if you also follow World Extreme Medicine, I'll accept the follow request. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, Sarah, look forward to seeing you in Edinburgh. Thank you very much. I can't wait. Thank you.